0: It's Billy Millard from the Cardiff Blues here on Rugger Matrix USA. Oh yes, thanks very much,
1: Bill Millard, joining us, the attack coach from the Cardiff Blues. He has a lot to say about USA rugby. Hi, I'm your host, Jeroen Sen, joined in a moment by Bruce McLean, our first episode for 2010. Lots to talk about with Bill Millard, the voice of reason. Looking forward to a massive season of rugby. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Rugger Matrix USA, we hope you had a great New Year and holiday and festive season, pretty warm where I am but Bruce McLean, you have the big coat on I understand
2: I don't necessarily have on a big coat. I am kind of a heavy man, a woolly mammoth who's been around for 30 million years, and I can I can survive in shorts and, and things, but I do have a very hairy chest, back, not a hairy head. All that fell off and went to my back, but it is freezing cold in New York. I'll tell you that, man. And, and we, we could say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah. We we don't have to say and Happy Kwanzaa and whatever you're celebrating Festivus, but we'll we'll say it. We don't have to say Happy Holidays. We're not politically correct on this show. We just keep clean clean. We're not we're not allowed to curse, right?
1: Absolutely, uh, but to many people, all I want to do is celebrate a holiday, and nothing else. But Bruce, good to speak to you, and uh, I hope you did have a good time with your family and friends over the short break that we had. It's only been two weeks but it seems like forever in rugby and uh, well we are in the 2010 year and I think actually we're supposed to call it 2010 uh, to be grammatically correct uh, Bruce so get on to that. We're only a few weeks away from the USA 7s down at Vegas I know you're going to hook up with our good friend who is from Heaven's Game, Jeremy Bynan, and I think he's getting in shape for it, uh, all building up for that. Yeah, I'm definitely
2: going down and I'm gonna be at the Sevens. I'm gonna see Jeremy Bynan. I'm gonna see just found out, I'm gonna see Dave Hodges. Eddie O'Sullivan's gonna be there. It should be a really, really fun thing and, and I, I think there's gonna be a lot of people there. they say they're saying twenty five to thirty thousand people on each given day in the stands, so I'm really, I'm really looking forward to the, to the whole event. It's going to be a tremendous party. And as you say, Juro, USA 7s, you've got to be there.
1: You've got to be there. Yes, Bruce, we are looking forward to the USA 7s. It's going to be a tremendous uh, kickstart of the season for USA Rugby. But in the meantime, we have business to talk about, and that's the man who engineers the attack for Cardiff Blues, former Sydney University uh, mentor, and did a fantastic job with that club in, in Australia. It really is the model club, I think, for, for anywhere in the world to dominate and of course the Melbourne Rebels in the Australian Rugby Championship all for one year I'm talking of course about Bill Millard who gets across to New York occasionally and, uh, and Harris you Bruce but uh, Billy thanks for joining us from Cardiff tonight
0: no worries guys good to be here and yeah love New York can't wait to get back there Brucey
1: <laughs> hey,
2: man, we'll, we'll, we'd love to have you, Bill. We, 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 always, we had a great time when you were here, and, and unfortunately I was a designated driver, so you guys had a better
1: time than me. Can I just say from the outset that this show is not about grilling you about Cardiff. Uh, we organized it several weeks ago, so this is purely about uh, your coaching talent and how you can offer advice to the game in the USA. So I just wanted to get that off the, uh, off the bat and so we can move on with what we really want to talk about. I know you've got some issues to handle there and and good luck with those over the next couple of weeks. But this is about USA Rugby and let's get into it. uh, Billy, what you've seen of uh, the developments uh, since uh, the USA has qualified for the 2011 Rugby World Cup, or should say 2011 as we said before, uh, do you think they can potentially cause uh, an upset or ruffle a few feathers when they come to New Zealand?
0: Yeah, I, um, when I was in New York the other week, I, I met with Bruce Tolks and uh, a couple of other coaches, and, and I was really impressed with, you know, I guess not only the passion, but just the, the insight and professionalism where, of where they're at. And uh, first hand experience, I guess, from coaching against the USA Sevens team. Um, you know, those games got tougher each year we did it, and uh, if, if that Sevens team improvement, um, flows onto the 15s, which I know it is. Um, you know they're going to be a handful.
2: Billy, I just wanted to talk to you real briefly. One of the things that you went through when when uh, Mike Tolkien Bill Leclaire, um, myself, and you were in were in our when we were in my office, we discussed how you build a team. Your team building exercise that I had written the article, Winning Behaviors with you for the uh, for the website, and I just wanted you to kind of talk us through that whole process of finding out who you are as a team, what you want to be as a team, and what you have to change to get to being what you want to be.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it's a process I came across uh, probably five or six years ago, and um, it's certainly not, not my process, uh, a company called Leading Teams, and uh, a good mate of mine, Gerald Murphy, who's uh, now in London. Um, it's a process that works for me and has worked for me. I guess from the outset it's not for everyone. Um, and, you know, I could talk forever about it, but basically it, it, it starts with um, getting the group of players together and getting them comfortable uh, talking about uh, open and honestly to each other and, and I guess... Not only the dominant people, but the quiet ones, because your quieter ones, who usually you sit up the back and say nothing, are the ones that we want to hear from. And it starts off very basically um, uh, with three columns, and we start talking about how do we think we're perceived as a team. So if I was to walk down to the two rival clubs and and ask them about um, team Green or our team, uh, what sort of things would they say and, and you know, we bounce ideas off each other and, and they sort of write up how they think they're perceived and I guess how they, they perceive themselves as well. Um, and, uh, you know, getting some pretty honest feedback, it starts off pretty slow, um, but then you get, get some good points across and once you've done that, you, you then start talking about how you want to be perceived as a team and this is where it gets interesting uh, um, looking at the differences between that first column and the third column. And I guess the beauty of the the whole process is the middle column is the behaviours you need to, to put in place or change or live by to get from the column where you are in in uh, how you're perceived to uh, how you want to be perceived. Um, I hope that that's not too confusing. That's that's the first stage.
1: Isn't that but um, something that's similar that I remember experiencing with the Waratahs, Billy, and uh, a lot of players. Wanted to be liked, but uh, not too many. them were prepared to be uh, respected and disliked because uh, you really can't have it both ways all the time. Some people can, but it's it's a difficult decision to make, isn't it? Because everyone's after respect, especially on the footy field.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it, it, it's a tough process all around, and uh, I, I know the Waratahs did do it um, again. The facilitators, ideally, the coach doesn't do it. You get an independent facilitator. Uh, Ray McLean, I think, did it at the Waratahs. Yep. Jared Murphy is the guy I work with. and um, They're good knockabout guys, and, and the players get a lot of trust in them and faith, and they, they tend to, to get good responses out of them. But one of, the, one of the big things, as you would have seen at the Waratahs, is as the process develops, and I'll get into that, is being able to give that feedback to another player not only give it, but more importantly, that player receive the feedback in a good manner and not get precious and, and actually take something out of it. So um, as I said, that's, that's stage one and, um, and uh, stage two, I guess, is um, forming a leadership group. So once, once that middle column of behaviours you want to live by comes up, we want to find out which guys in the team at the moment live those behaviours the best. So there's different ways of doing it, but the way I like to do it is players actually vote on who they think does it the best, and they stand up, no private ballots under the table. You stand up. If you've got 22 in your squad, you name the bloke who does it the best and the bloke that does it the worst. And from that, you form a leadership group to drive these behaviors.
2: Yeah, Billy, could you talk us through, I think it was you and Rod McQueen had done that when you were with the the Melbourne Rebels, and... How what, what exactly were the behaviours that needed to be changed and what were the ways that you wanted to be perceived? And, you know, just give us some examples as to what those answers were from those players.
0: It was a unique uh, situation at the Rebels and um, in say, what I mean by that is we had a chance to set up a team from scratch. From the outset, it was very hard to get um, the players I guess on paper we wanted to get and Rod sort of led the idea that um, okay we're not going to get the the rock, so-called rock star players we're going to get so let's get a group of players with a really good ethos and have a strong culture so we did that and you know there were some good good footballers in amongst it but on paper it was more a team of good hard grafting club players with a, with a um, a lot of guys I knew personally through the sevens and and sydney uni and and through David croft and we knew that we the coaches we knew that we didn't have um, probably the talent of the other teams but we knew we had a really strong ethos within that team now the the key to the rebels were when the players got together and did this process they identified that themselves they identified that if we try and play fancy football like two or three of the other teams will come undone. Um, they found the strengths themselves, and those strengths were we're going to work harder than other teams, we're going to be more physical at training than other, than other teams, and when we go down the paddock, we're going to adopt a simple game plan and just basically put physical pressure on teams with a couple of players having that individual brilliance like Luke Burgess, Digby Ione. And it, I think that was the key, that the players actually signed off on that early, Um, and it was an absolute dream just to, uh, just to guide it along.
2: You, you talked about you and Rod McQueen, when you, when you saw your team and you were putting it together, you were missing one component of the team that had nothing to do with rugby, but was very important for being a team. And what was that component? And then also what were the behaviors that these guys had to change to get to where they wanted to be?
0: Right. We, um, The behaviours they came up with, uh, some some of the it's called a trademark they come up with, and a lot of teams have these trademarks and put them around their dressing rooms and tap them on the way out. We didn't want one of them, and that that isn't what this process is about. Um, We had a a a tight, ruthless, and another word I can't announce, um, with a couple of behaviours underneath it, and the leadership group drove them 100% mainly on the field but a little bit off, if a player was late for training, if a player continually missed contact sessions, if a player was whinging about selections, the leadership group who lived these behaviours would just pull them into line. So very quickly, um, anyone who stepped outside, anything that wasn't tight and ruthless, whether that be, um, as I said, not training because of blisters or um, pulling out of contact sessions being two minutes late to something, um, wearing the wrong kit, all those little things, um, the coaches didn't even have to step in. The, the leadership group, some of the older guys like Matt Cobain and, and David Crawford on the leadership group and some young kids who were 18 years old were on the leadership group and players within two or three weeks just would not step outside the boundaries. So that all the behaviours um, were exceptional. Uh, they had a lot of fun but the behaviours were, were driven as they signed off on on the first couple of days. One of the elements we looked at, and, and it's, it's a Sydney Uni, I saw it at Sydney Uni as well, um, was the fun component. Uh, I guarantee we worked harder than, most, well, than every other ARC team and I also know that the boys had more fun than every other ARC team in the competition. And what we wanted to get was a couple of... Uh, a couple of personalities. Naturally, a few of them came up, but we actually actually went after one in particular who didn't play that much rugby for us. Um, I didn't know him that well, but a few of the players had, had brought his name up because we just felt we were lacking a bit of a social leader. And uh, and this guy came down from Brisbane and was just exceptional, just organised everything. Whenever a player was down, he picked them up. He led some ridiculous nights um, never got into trouble. Um, I, think, I think they got close, but but just mm-hmm. a really nice social environment led by this player. And I heard someone say the other day over here. I think Di Young was saying that um, they name one of the best Lions tourists ever. Never actually played a game. Um, I think it was Jason Leonard. I think. Um, but it's it's that sort of um, that sort of thing we were after at the Melbourne Rebels, and we were lucky to have a couple of guys who led us socially as well.
1: That's a really important trait to have. I know that Sean Burns had that uh, reputation in all the clubs he's been at, and, and it is important because it sort of gives uh, a heart to the team.
0: Yeah, and and Sydney Uni, uh, Tim Davidson, who captained the two premierships when I was there, I think he's he's now captained five premierships. He
1: has, Amazing yes.
0: player, sensational bloke, great family, but was the leader on and off the field. And everyone loved having a beer with him. Um, he never got into trouble, but he, he led some, uh, some great nights and it was very much, you know, I know I hear it 100 times, but the work hard, play hard thing. If you just work hard and you're not sharing those experiences off the field, I, I think you're missing out on, um, you know, what, what rugby's all about. And when push comes to shove, um, Sydney Uni and the Melbourne Rebels, uh, in the heat of the battle, always dug in for each other.
1: That self-policing thing where the players are chipping each other about not being in the right playing kit, being late for meetings, not pulling their weight, did that uh, sustain the whole season? And just a quick reminder for people who aren't aware, the ARC we're talking about here, the ARC, was the Australian Rugby Championship. All too brief, all too fleeting, but some fantastic football, and Billy controlled the Melbourne Rebels, and it was a nationwide competition in 2007, and the hopes were that it would continue as a bridging competition between club and the professional level of the game. Unfortunately, it only went one year. And it means that uh, you had a very brief time with them. But did the players, con- and this is the tough thing, to keep the players, to keep them policing without you stepping in? Did it go all the season?
0: It did. At one stage, uh, Jared Murphy had to come in and, and spend some time with the leadership group. Um, again, that issue of uh, they wanted to be liked and respected and, and they had to come down and, and be a little bit harder on, on a couple of stages but uh, um, it did last the whole season. The other guy who, who did it very well was my, my uh, good mate Shaunie Mackay who captained the Sevens team. Um, we had a lot of young kids, uh, a lot of very talented young kids come away with the Sevens um, and some of them it was the first time they've been overseas and Shaun drove that culture so hard they loved him as a bloke but i wouldn't say they were scared of him but they they respected him that much and he set such a good example that everyone just jumped in line and i think uh it's such a powerful thing because if the coaches continually have to pick kids up on behavior pick players up on behavior like a school teacher it it just gets really tedious and and um you know the the energy of the whole group goes down
2: Billy, when you speak of captains, and I I always think of Christian Mayo in New York, at the New York Athletic Club, who was that kind of captain. He was that guy off the field. He was that guy on the field, and he was that guy at practice. He was everything you could ever want in a player. Um, You also spoke about how when you go through this process, you find leaders that you don't expect to find, especially out of your youth and especially out of some quiet people that – really step up and, and, and start to build their leadership skills so that this is a continual process and you have leaders going forward. And I think that's probably part of the reason that Sydney Uni has been able to do this for five years. I mean, when, you're, when you win as the hunted, you're a very good team.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, I speak about that a lot. To, to be able to back up like, like Sydney Uni and I guess Geelong have done in, in AFL in, in Australia... It's uh, it's very special, and, and guys like Tom Carter, who uh, who the could know pretty well, who who started off at Sydney as a young do. I certainly a young, do <laughs> a young annoying young man. He, he's still annoying. He's still annoying, but <laughs> his leadership skills and his um, the way he gets people into that Sydney Uni culture, and it's not just Tommy. There's there's a whole lot who have sort of followed Timmy Davidson and Michael Griffin's lead. And and just good behaviours and and um, a good style of of, uh, of leadership has been passed down and um, yeah it's it's the young kids can sometimes as I said just lead through behaviours I think in the old days uh, whoever was the loudest most dominant um, you know the most experienced players just became the leaders and and they spent most of their time trying to do less and trying to pull, pull the wool over the coach's eyes. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, this is a really good process and it's great to have a couple of young, young kids who may not be the talkers but just live good behaviours and, and set good examples to, to be a leader.
2: Billy, I, I really appreciate you going through that with us and I, I wanted to now kind of move into another aspect of of what we discussed when 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 we were in New York and have you flesh it out a little bit is training and what you do in training and how you should structure training and how you can get the most out of training and understanding that rugby is not a compartmentalized game you don't like scrum for 20 minutes then line out like you kind of do everything all the time and you have some very interesting approaches to training and also you have some very interesting approaches you the way you practice is extremely physical and and you don't you are not afraid to be a very physical coach and you're not afraid to be, have very physical practices if you would talk us through kind of your theory and how you worked at the at the Melbourne Rebels and how you worked with Sydney Uni and how possibly a twice a week to three time a week um plan you would put together for teams in preseason and in-season for, for American teams because a lot of coaches listen to the show and they'd be really interested to hear what you have to say because it was some very, very good stuff.
0: Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> the boys reckon I've softened in my, in my old age, but um, I, I think the first thing, looking back onto when I was doing two or three nights a week with Sydney Uni, um, the first thing I looked for, I wanted the players to come to practice, and a lot of coaches think that a part of that is just make it fun and, and, um, and make it easy and have a good time. I, I found that players actually like it organised and like it hard um, and that sort of task reward process where they actually enjoyed coming out on a Tuesday and Thursday night and, and being pushed really hard and, and then rewarding them for it, whether it's a, just verbal reward or, or a dinner they felt that, that's what they want. That's what most rugby players want. They don't want to come to training and, and muck around and, and, and leave thinking they haven't done much. So that's the first thing I used to think about, um, be really well organised, which leads into the sort of trainings I used to do. I think you need a couple of good assistants and you need to be able to spend time during the day to set up a training session that is contextualised in that it bounces and it takes a while for the players to get used to it but as you said, to be able to do a 20-minute block of lineouts, go over and do 20 minutes of contact, come back and do 15 minutes of set-piece defence, it, it doesn't mirror what a game's about. You need to be able to change your mindset, your thought process um, from attack and defence, set-piece, under fatigue. Um, we used to throw, in the middle of training, throw the goal kickers away to do a couple of kicks during training. So they're switching on all of a sudden they're, they're having to kick a penalty 40 metres out, then they're back into defence. So we'd organise it where, um, yeah, you had to do some some close stuff to, to, for scrummaging and to get certain aspects right. Once you add those basics in place, you need to put the players under pressure by bouncing them from a line-out, two line-outs, over to five minutes of contact, back in for another line-out, maybe back over for some contact, a scrum, a restart, a little bit of fitness, then you might have a five-minute break to to sort of mirror a a half-time, come back out with a scrum focus um, and maybe some tracking drills or some hit-and-stick drills. Um, That's the way we like to set it up. Underneath that, the Sydney Uni ethos when I was there was there was a lot of talk about what are East doing or what are Randwick doing down the road. I bet they're not doing this. I bet they're doing their contacts with pads I bet they're doing their contact with tackle shields with suits on. We're doing it bone to bone. And once they've finished it, the boys have a lot of confidence from it because they know that A, they've worked smarter during the week and B, they push themselves harder during the week. So they go into the game deep down knowing that they've got an advantage. And I think other teams knew that about Sydney Uni, which sort of started the role of, um, of where they're at today. <clears throat> In saying that, You've got to be very careful about injuries. I know there'd be a lot of teams over in in the states, and and the same in Australia and Sydney Uni at times, where you can't you can't bash each other because you're two or three injuries away from from um, you know being being a, a lesser team, losing some key players. So you need to be smart about it. But you know you look at Leicester over here and Leinster, um, they train hard. I spent a week with Pat Howard a few years ago and. Um, you know, that, that really, I took that back to Sydney Uni in that their scrummaging was live and it was full on. Their contact, their starter plays against backline was full contact. Their restarts were full contact. And, uh, yeah, you, you get a couple of injuries, but um, the players get a lot of confidence from it. And when they go into a game situation, they can handle the pressure. And, and that's what it's all about. If you train in a fake environment all week and things look good, um, you know, you go out there on a Saturday with twenty, thirty percent more pressure, and the mistakes come. So that I know I bounced a bit there, but that—that's my general philosophy on uh, on how you should train. You know, if you've got two or three nights a week.
1: No, no, bravo, Billy. In fact, uh, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I had a conversation with Jer- Jeremy Bynum the other day, and you know, and I know we're talking about coaching a lot, but you t- I tell you what, some of the some of the tactics and and the job creation um, strategies of coaches really en- gets me annoyed. And what I mean by that, and you've, so, you've all seen it, both of you, and I want to get your comments on this, is about coaches that engineer drills and skill set situations uh, with the pads, with your cones, and, and Kissy, Les Kiss talks about it a lot with Ireland. You get this cone mentality where you, you break up training to, to such an extent it doesn't resemble rugby at all. How do, you yeah. know? How do you know to play with a, with a guy on your team when there's the subtle running lines and the drifting and stuff like that that you don't know unless you're playing the simulated game at least? And it's good to see that you're actually out there playing those matches. What, Gerald, I, can I jump in here yeah, on that? Yeah, yeah, and just one second, Bruce. But what I want to say is that I've seen it a lot and I've seen it fail a lot where, where they've just broken things up. And surely the, the, you've got to work out what the player is going to be like during the game. And I think Billy's right on the right track.
2: Yeah, and, 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 that, and that was one of the reasons I wanted Billy to speak about it because I, I think it's very important. Um, I want to jump in because I think that that's, a, that that's a laziness on the part of coaches. Po- coaches set up drills, put together cones, and put these things together so that they can – keep everything under complete control so that they can see everything and it's easy for the coach. It doesn't necessarily make the players better. Like part of what Mike Tolkien and I's ethos is at the AC is that we want to make players better every time they go to practice. That's our goal. So I think that you have to have a real good eye to see things when you go in and you do a contact session and you come back and you may have a scrum, a line out, and a restart – where you're going live, or you're going, you know, relatively rough opposition, and you have to see what what are the support patterns of the players, how are the players setting up in formation in second and third phase, where are where is everybody on the field? You have to have a pretty good eye, but you also have to have, as Billy alluded to earlier, you have to have been prepared so that you know exactly what you're looking for, and I think mm. that it's a lot more difficult in a game like situation where you got to really think about what's happening and that comes down to preparation on both ends and then being able to look and see it and have the confidence that you spent the time visualizing you spent the time understanding as opposed to putting these people into artificial situations. It is a big big pet peeve of mine. Sorry that I jumped off onto a a little bit of a tangent I know this is Billy's show but I just it's something that really drives me out of my mind.
1: Well it certainly drives me out of my mind as well and these uh... Uh, these these sessions I know of a national coach that wanted to play the perfect game plan and, uh, and orchestrate it from the coaching box but when it came to training there was no one in opposition running against your moves, so when it came to game time all of a sudden, oh hold on you've got the All Blacks trying to stop you from going forward, then it all yeah. turns turns <laughs> south very very quickly, I mean Billy you've, you've, you've been through coaching for a long time now and uh, you surely would have seen and come across a lot of coaches that maybe have just engineered a lot of training just to make them feel better and, and, and not the team. Like, we talked about individuals getting better, but what about the team? This is the thing I wanted to get at when I was talking with Jeremy the other day. You watch your team train at, at training and just say 80% of the blokes know what they're doing when it goes to scrum line-out and general phase play, whatever you want to talk about in the game. But there's one guy who can't pass left to right or he's got some sort of issue in backing up and defence. Well, then you surely you pull that guy out and work on him. And then you put him back in and, yeah, he, the team gets better. You know, this collective thing. Yeah, they're individuals, but, Billy, it's a team that we're talking about that wins the game.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I think a, a couple of things I've, I've jotted down while we've been talking... <coughs> um, Robbie Dean's put me onto a book a few years ago called First Break All the Rules and I'd, I'd recommend it to, to any coaches or managers out there. It's about, if you've got a bloke, for example, and he won't mind me saying this, Michael Griffin, who who played 300-odd games for Sydney in his first grade, probably one of the worst offenders, technically, I've ever seen in my life, but he never missed a tackle. And I, th- I think it was Eddie Jones that said to me, why are you trying to change him? Why are you trying to get it? Does he miss tackles? And I'm like, no, but... He tackles with his legs and his head in the wrong spot and his arms all over the shot. And this book talks about you can't change someone's behaviours that much. You can spend a lot of time trying to do it. But Griffo had a lot of other positives about him. He ran good lines. Um, He he had exceptional uh, support lines. He was a great finisher. So we just concentrated on that with him. He got much better at his strengths. Yeah, we chipped away at his weaknesses, but really we didn't have the time to get that huge improvement. So um, that's, that's one of the points. The, the, the other point I was going to mention was um, uh, my, my mate Paul Limbrey, who's over in San Francisco in Olympic. One of the things, just touching on what he liked at training, and Johnny Cox, another the Belmont Shore coach, the two nights a week, they always liked eight or ten minutes and, and I don't do this anymore in, in, in this professional environment, you, you can't afford to do it because we've got professional conditioners, but they loved just ten minutes once a week of old school, rock and roll, fitness, up and downs, hitting pads until you couldn't walk and then make them go another two minutes and when they thought think they're finished, make them go another minute and that gave them so much confidence. and. And I know it's a very simplistic way of approaching things, but with with some of your groups, when you've got that sort of ethos there, it even though in 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 terms of an outcome of a game, it probably doesn't mean much. From a confidence point of view, they know that they've done a little bit extra than the other team hasn't. And uh, and, and I've got a lot of joy out of that when I when I was coaching my two or three nights a week, which I did for for six or seven years that was something we always did as well to to top off uh you know our our I guess our patterns and all our technical stuff
2: Billy I I, I got to say I totally agree with you on that and in fact when the NYAC won in 2008 we had lost a mid-season game against um against Belmont Shore and Johnny came over to my office and we we had gotten we had gotten whacked at the breakdown it was four tries to four we missed all our kicks but they they had beaten the hell out of us at the breakdown and I spoke to him about it and he went into a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about and how he savaged these guys and how he – we were keeping them under cotton wool and kid gloves and we yeah. just stopped it immediately. We stopped it immediately and and yeah. you got to see it was it – essentially he lost himself a championship by helping me um, and, and and it was – it was really tremendous stuff and and what you say about the fitness mike and i you know where we say oh it seems like it's a waste of time but the guys like it it just it they it kind of makes it gives them something to bond with and it yeah. just gives them gives them a, like you said confidence and you can't buy confidence like when a guy's confident you, you know that that's worth a lot that's worth a lot in in terms of you know you want to sit and you say i'm going to do extra time on handling and stuff man Have them knock around and, and man, make them confident. Make them physically strong, physically fit, and physically confident. And you will be surprised at how many games that will carry you through. That's for sure. That's yeah, sorry.
0: I I think one of the other things in Sydney, and and I'm sure it's the same in the States, Bruce, is, is that one of the things that uni have got, and we had it at the Rebels as well, very rare someone leaves uni. It's very... Rob McQueen said to me, when we drop the Melbourne Rebels at the airport when they all leave after the three or four months, we want to shake their hands and we want them to say, see you next year. And I can tell you, if that if the Australian Rugby Championships went for another year, we could have we would have had to turn players away because most of the players from the other teams knew what was going on in Melbourne and were starting to email and call me. And it's a similar thing at Sydney Uni. Um the, the training sessions are and they've got the luxury of having a lot of full-time staff. The training sessions are probably the best in Sydney, but, God, they have some fun off the field. So after they've done the hard bash, grunt, and, and work probably half an hour more than any other club, Timmy Davidson's then organising a dinner for 15, you know, with a bit of a fancy dress theme or <laughs> or, or something a bit weird and, and 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 quirky. And, you know, the word gets out that, that this is what's happening at Sydney Uni, and you don't have to worry about retention issues. Which is, which is a big thing. I know, for example, in Europe, Munster. Munster have a very good culture there and players want to get into that culture and they don't want to leave that culture. That helps you as a coach because I think stability is such a big thing. And if you look at that Sydney Uni team, I know we keep talking about it, but as, as Bronx said at the outset, it's, it's probably the best model I've seen in the world for back-to-back success. It is, as I said, the captain's been there five years straight. Daniel Halangalu, Tom Carter, Michael Griffin, um, all these young players, Dave Dennis, um, you you could name probably 13 or 14 of them that are just in there year in, year out. The coaches don't have to worry about them getting poached because they're going nowhere because they, they know they're getting good, hard training sessions and they're having a lot of fun and something we forget about a lot, they've met most of their lifelong friends there. So you don't have to worry about recruitment issues a lot of the other clubs they'll they'll work hard to get a player in and then he'll leave at the end of the year because he hasn't enjoyed it on or off field and then they got to start again and i think that's a huge element of, of of building a successful club
1: the thing about sydney uni uh we've talked about often on uh, on other programs billy and uh i'd like you to explain it as best you can is that how and this is to the frustration of the opposition mind you Is it how that Sydney Uni, with 20 minutes to go, if they played a bad game, know how to flip the switch and play the game out and shut the opposition out? Everyone knows what to do, and they are clinical in how they do it.
0: I think it it comes back to a couple of things we've mentioned. One is they've all got faith in each other because they've done it before. Two is they've done it during the week. They know they've done the work during the week. And three, there's so much pride in that club. I've been in those change rooms on a Thursday night where guys like Mark Avery and James Dorney, who spent some time in New York, stand up and talk about um, what the badge means, what the colours in the badge means. And this isn't a get up and talk for two minutes off the cuff. This is a very entertaining, passionate, tears, and it's not just the first grade in there. It's first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and your four Colts teams, all your water carriers, all your managers, all your volunteers, and they're in this tiny little change room, sitting on top of each other. And when the first grade run out to play, they've got three or four teams who have hung around to form a 50-metre a tunnel. And most of the time, um, you know, you've got guys like Bob Edgerton, who was coach of first grade, running the line for the fifth grade at 8.30 in the morning. It, it's... It's a pride thing and it's a confidence thing. Obviously, they're good footballers. They're they're well coached. Um, they know what to do. But I think a lot of teams have got that. It's that that especially when you Sydney Uni play at home. I don't. You be, might be able to tell me, Bronk. When's the last time they lost at home?
1: They haven't lost since uh, two thousand and five. You
0: know, that's 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 it's an unbelievable
1: amazing. record. And and, and uh, you know we we made a big deal about it with Tommy Carter and on other programs who we mentioned before. And this is a good lesson, Bruce, for a lot of teams. Um, they've, they've wasn't, won-
2: Billy coach, wasn't Billy coaching
1: there in 2005? Uh, yeah, Billy lost the game. But <laughs> 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 though, uh, lost. It was, um, you know, and now it's a talking point. But now, uni are holding on to that as another piece of uh, history that they don't want to let go. They, they don't want to get beaten there again. They don't, they don't expect, okay, one day we'll get beaten. They're driven by the fact that they want to make that record continue. So it's over 40 games in a row. It's amazing.
0: It is. And, and I, um, as I look up on my wall, I've got a, a, a couple of great photos of, of uni up there. I, I remember something distinctly, and I always, I always think about it. We lost a game at Southern Districts, Bruce, which, you know, we shouldn't lose. And we weren't switched on. We got touched up quite heavily. That next week, and then we had West Harbour, who was coached by Matt Williams, who were doing pretty well. We had them at home the next week. I have never, ever, in 11 years of coaching, seen a contact session and the intensity those that the boys put in during the week. Most of these guys are just amateurs. They've got full-time jobs. Still to this day, I've never seen a week like it. I think we won 96-0. There was minutes ago, um, we were 90 or 89 points up, and they were screaming at each other to score again, and it's, it's, it's just a phenomenal pride and and uh, the way they push each other. Again, going back to the leading teams, the behaviours, um, going back to some stability and and pride in the jersey that has been enhanced through these little chats and quirky things the players drive. Um, it 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 was mind blowing. I know uh, you know a few of the players still talk about it. Yeah, those 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 little things in bouncing back and, and getting things right are, are outstanding. In saying that, I think they got a big challenge this year. I'm pretty sure Tim Davidson has uh, moved on. Uh, Damien Hill's moved on. I think they got a new Colts coordinator. Um, there's a bit of a change of the guard there, so it's, uh, it's going to be a, a, a good challenge to see how they go.
1: And, Bruce, uh, I think um, this can resonate across the USA as well with blokes battling with uh, occupations as well as playing rugby. But a guy like uh, Tim Davidson, who came back to the team after trying his hand in Europe, uh, also spent time on his parents' property driving a header uh, to to get the wheat (laughs) harvested in time. And then came back. Uh, One of the uh, mentors at uh, Sydney University got him a part-time job to keep in game, he slotted straight back into the team, and then won his fifth premiership. It's that sort of commitment to the team, and, and, and I guess the um, infrastructure around that team that's enabled um, players to come back. But he wanted to come back. You know, they've, they've created an environment, uh, environment there that players want to play and come back at all costs.
2: I, I think that I think that's important in in terms of the United States because as Billy said, player retention, and I think it's important at the professional level too. I think that too many people go in and in, in the professional level and they don't necessarily think about how that person fits into their club. And they also don't think about it in terms of the super league and, and top division one teams in the United States. How does that person fit into your club that you're trying to recruit? Is he going to add value or is he going to be a real problem for you? And, in, in closing this little segment before we get into our kicking stuff, Billy, I just wanted you to go through very quickly. There's a contact drill that you do in three channels where there's a few defenders and then they work and you do some offloads, you do some pick and goes and you do a little bit of open space stuff. And I just wanted you to talk us through it possibly so that the listeners have something that they could take away from Billy Millard. there's a million, a million things that Billy's had that they're really excellent this is something that's real hard work, takes five or ten minutes, and but you could really, really jam through. And if you just talk us through that Billy, you know, the one with there's three guys down the end and then you do some pick and goes in the yep. first thing, it's a wide open spot in the second, and you do some offloading in the third one. All right?
0: It's um it's a drill I've been doing since I was about twenty two and, and I still find as I said to you in, in New York, mate, it, it's it's I still find it one of the best decision making contact drills to do. Three channels. Um, the first channel is, um, you can use a five-meter, um, the five meter channel. It's just five meters uh, between say the, the 22 and the try line. And in that channel you have three defenders and they just stand together um, about a meter off the line. You have four attackers facing them with the ball on the ground. So that's your channel one. Channel two, is about 22 or 20 metres wide and those three defenders have to cover the whole area in that channel. So the four defenders have got a lot of space to work with and a lot of space to manipulate the defenders. The third channel has the defenders lined up behind each other. So four attackers down a channel, you know, the old offloading drill. And the defenders, you don't have defenders in each channel. Those three defenders defend channel one as a, as a group of three together they defend channel two as best they can because there's massive space and in channel when they hit channel three they stand about five meters behind each other in a single file. There's a ball in, in front of each channel so there's three balls that belong to each of the channels. The coach calls channel one and the only thing you can do there is try and find a bit of space get low body height, latch on and it's pretty heavy contact just trying to get good for uh, a bit of go forward, and, and present the ball, it's pretty heavy contact. Once you're happy with that, you call channel two. So the defenders just whip into channel two covering the big space, and the three, the four attackers come out channel one, put the ball back down, get around, and they play channel two. Now ideally there no one gets touched, they just let the ball do the work, and they get through, again, it's about 15, 20 meters um, long. Once you're happy with channel two, you blow your whistle, into channel three, they put the ball down when they come out of channel two. They pick up the ball for channel three. The individual puts a bit of footwork on. The support comes from depth, and you offload. Now this is where it gets interesting. So that did that make sense? The basic drill.
2: I yeah, it did make sense except for in the middle channel. You just did did were you were you clear on the fact that there's a guy, a guy, and a guy that they're kind of defending in depth, not necessarily in. Right in front yeah. of each other, you know yeah.
0: what I'm saying? All right. Correct. That because that's a twenty meter space, they you know, they're trying to the, you might have two at the front, <laughs> one at the back. There's a lot of space there to move the ball. Now the, the the key to it is what I usually do, I pick my best three defenders to start the drill. And you clue them up. You get a bit old school, you keep it simple, and you make sure that first contact, the attack gets absolutely driven backwards. So that lifts the intensity straight away. The next thing is The coach calls channel one, channel two, channel three. Usually that's all done pretty well. Channel two, channel three, channel one, channel three. All of a sudden your attack starts to get fatigued and mistakes start happening. And you just keep going. And what you find is your body height starts to get high when the four attackers take on the defenders in the big space where the first three times they just got through untouched they start running into, in, into defenders instead of moving the ball. So you get them to make these decisions under fatigue. Anyone can do it for 30 seconds when they're, when they're fresh. The key is get some defenders who are willing to hit to up the intensity early and then push them through about eight or nine of the channels till fatigue kicks in and then see the guys who are making good decisions under fatigue. It's, it's a really good drill. It's pretty basic. I, I, I hope... It's hard to sort of paint a picture without drawing it, but um, I-, I hope that makes sense.
2: Thank you very much for that. I think it's a, a outstanding stuff. And I just wanted to ask you one real quick question because I know that this is a passion of yours. In America, our kicking game is not up to standard. If you were the director of rugby, if you were the Nigel Melville of America,
0: Could I live would in would you... York?
2: You could live in New York, baby. You could stay in my house. <laughs> you could stay in my house. Come out here, coach the AC with us, have a real good time, be a good team too. Um, if, if, um, if you were the director of rugby and if you, wanted to ha- if you were going to have a program to develop a kicking game from a tactical and technical standpoint, bottom up and top down because we have to deal with the elite game, Cause that's where we are right now. We also have to deal with the bottom up, cause that's the only way we're going to improve. How would you go about it?
0: Yeah, it's a big project, and um, I mentioned to you over there. It's such an important part of the game these days. And you can get all the other areas right. Um, you know, we we find when when we get our kicking game right, um, the result is usually right on the scoreboard. Right. The first, the first thing, I guess, um, in thinking about the States is there's not a kicking culture there when the kids grow up recreationally. I, I dare say they throw baseballs, they throw a gridiron ball, they shoot hoops. Similar sort of thing in Australia. In New South Wales and Queensland, um, your recreational uh, trends of a 10 to 15-year-old would be passing a ball and even these days, more so playing these Wii games and, and, and computer games. When I grew up, I was fortunate enough for my kicking to get moved from my family to Adelaide. And for for those in the States that don't know, Adelaide isn't a rugby state. It's an AFL state where the, the core skill is kicking. So whenever I was at school at lunchtime or after school, we kicked the footy. And by the time I got to the age of 15, 16, I probably kicked off both feet. I'd hate to think how many times. So my natural motor skill was very, very comfortable. Um, and when I used to go back and kick with my cousins in Sydney, they probably had a better catch and pass sort of thing than me, but they couldn't kick. And I could kick off both feet, I could drop kick, and I was very, very comfortable with all sorts of kicks. So that's from, from an amateur level. Um, if you grab a kid in the national squads at the age of 18, 19, 20, who hasn't got that repetition under his belt from a young age, it's going to be very hard to, uh, to be able to push him because one of the things we, we find, Benny Blair, who's probably our best kicker, he, he's, he grew up kicking, so we can throw 200 kicks into a week and he's not going to get tight hammies, he's not going to get tight tight glutes or hip flexors and we can do a lot of situational kicking with him that I'll talk about in a minute. So, so at the bottom level, I think... They just need to kick, and it, it needs to be uh, it needs to be informal. Um, but they need to get that kick in, and and just learn how the ball feels on their foot, balance, and they naturally start to correct themselves. Um, you look at Chris Latham; probably got one of the hasn't got a great technique, but he knows how to kick. He knows what works for him, and he's turned himself into a very good kicker. So it's getting that repetition at a young age in the states, and I'd probably look to identify the 10s, the 12s, the 15s and the wingers at that young age if that's possible and get their coaches just to once or twice a week stay behind after school or after training or before and just get 30, 40 kicks out twice a week. Um, Once you start to get to an older age group when you can get some kicking um, repetition done without causing injuries, you have gotta get your close skills done first. So that is 20 meters away, getting your ball drop right, um, getting your grip and release, um, getting your leg support, your follow-through, and filming it and, and trying to get as technically correct as possible. Again, if a kid's hitting his target every time and he's not quite right, then I'd probably let it be. From that situation, getting into your, your Mike Herkus, your, your, your eagle-type players, your drop kickers for, um, uh, for your sevens team, It's more about situational kicking. They need to do some close skills, but the coaches, again, need to set up situations that they'll find themselves in the game. And the two biggest we work on are long kicks to space. It's no use doing a long kick to space if you haven't got two guys coming at you with their hands in the air trying to smother you. It's no use doing long kicks if you haven't got a full back and an open side winger changing where they're at. It's no use kicking without wind. So all those situational... Um, situations around that halfway line to kick the space. It's important the coaches let their 10s and 15s um, practice those situations week in, week out. The other kick that's coming into play is this high ball. If you can put a high ball up, even in your de- de- defending zone, in the exit route, you put a high ball up and you get your timing right on the chase and you either get up and compete or let them catch and new hit, it's very effective. You can drive them backwards, you can get turnovers and you can really change a game. But if you're not practicing those, that sort of kick during the week under pressure, you're not going to get it right on the weekend. So it's the balance of, at the young age, just kicking, just getting repetition, getting that, uh, that feel of the ball, having a bit of fun, getting them enjoying kicking as they get older, starting to get a bit more technical with them with close skills and then put them in situations that they're going to find on the weekends. And through that process, I think you'd find three or four kids, um, you know, 10s and 15s that have got really nice kicks at the age of 16 and 18, and then they're the guys you'd probably look to get leap with and really start pushing so that, you know, in three or four years' time, you, you've got a group of, of really strong kickers.
1: And, uh, Billy, uh, many Americans may not even know that uh, several... Australian AFL footballers have played a significant role in the NFL. I was yeah.
2: talking to Sean Landetta, who was arguably one of the greatest punters of all time, has a couple of Super Bowl rings with the Giants, mm. uh, punted in the NFL for over 20 years. And he said that if you have a person who could take a snap, kick a ball, and put it out of bounds 40 to 45 yards away every single time, that person would make five to ten million dollars a year because they can't return the kick. And he said, I am not kidding. He said, The difference is if you miss and you put it twenty five, you're of no use. Yeah. You have to put it forty to forty five. And he said, That the new wave in punting is going to be the drop punt style of the Australians. And he said that in no uncertain terms. And he was very, very clear about it. And and uh so I do agree with you. And one of the things I just wanted to say about what Billy said before we go. um, Billy, what I'm getting from what we've discussed, the entire thing that we've discussed in this show, is that pressure creates diamonds. And that you have to do everything under pressure, whether you're a player, whether you're a coach, or whether you're a team. And if you take the easy way out, if you take a shortcut or you cut a corner, you're essentially um, putting yourself into uh, – you're, you're setting up yourself for failure. So you have to put yourself under pressure and, and kind of roll the dice a little bit. Exactly. Am I, t- no. am I correct?
0: You, you are, and, and I bore my players to death, and, and, and I always talk about the analogy of a maths exam. If, if, you, if you've got a maths exam coming up in three or four weeks and it's of you know, statistics and, and some formulas and, and pretty hard stuff, if you're just practicing long division and simple equations and you're getting 99 out of 100 in all your practice, practice, practice exams, you're just cheating yourself. You're going to the exam and, and you're going to fail. If you do the opposite and you ask your lecturer, to, this is how I got through stats, you ask your lecturer to give you harder examples than are going to be in the exam, you get them wrong but find out where you went wrong and start to get a few right. You go into the exam and it's actually easier than what you've been doing. That's the model I was talking about with Sydney and the Rebels. They'd that actually, that actually enjoy getting to Saturdays because they knew that some of the pressure situations in that game, they're going to be, handle, be able to handle easier than what they have during the week. And, and I think, you know, anything in life and, and um, rugby's, rugby's no exception, that you've got to put them under pressure... And with the guys who play rugby, they enjoy it. That's what they're there for. They want to be challenged. Um, if it's too boring or too simple for them, they won't try. And the standards too too poor. When they when you do push them hard and you reward them, that's when you get enjoyment and that's when you get results. Alright, Billy. I think
2: it's I think it's great what you just said, Billy. And I and I when I talk to the guys who've had a lot of success from Armback and from old blues and from Atlanta renegades and things in the United States life university. And the thing that they always say practice was way, way tougher than the game could ever hope to be. And, and, and that's how
1: you win. And that's when you're going to be ready. That's when you're going to be ready. All right, Billy Miller. Thank you. Joining us from Cardiff tonight. Uh, good luck with your blues. Uh, it's a bit tough at the moment, but, uh, Look, you know how to be successful, so we wish you the very best of luck in the coming weeks. And, uh, Bruce, good to have him on, and I'm gl- I'm glad he survived his yeah. trip to New York. Hey, everybody <laughs> survives their trip to New York when you're hanging out here, baby. It,
2: uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Billy, and I hope to have you back soon to, to uh, I I think that, you know, maybe in the summer you can come by and and say hello and maybe help some people out. That'd be good. I, I think America could use a little dose of Billy Millard. I, I think it would it would be very helpful.
0: Thanks guys, really enjoyed the chat and uh and loving your show and and look forward to listening in the future.
1: There is Billy Millard and before we go Billy, we're just going to remind you it's on in February 13 14 Vegas the USA sevens. You gotta be there. Bruce. McCray. You gotta
2: be there. You gotta be there. I was just talking to those guys on the weekend. They gotta be there. <laughs>
1: Oh, looking forward to it. So, um, although I would have liked to have been there for CES, but that's another technical dorky matter. I won't get into that, Bruce.
2: Well, yeah, no, no. You know what? I I think that most of the guys know exactly what you're talking about, technical and dorky. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Yeah,
2: there's the technical, there's the dorky, and then there's the lines. Can I have autographs? Can I have
1: autographs? (laughs) Oh, dear. All right there uh, there we are so Bruce uh, we will uh, we're back for the new year we've got another big show next week and we're just going to pump them out for the rest of 2010 so thanks for joining us mate and uh, have a nice week we'll speak to you next week on Rugger Matrix USA
2: Thanks a lot Bronco it's great being here it's great being back I felt like you said 2 weeks it felt like 6 months I'll tell you
1: yes, it felt like it's it certainly felt like six months not speaking to you, but uh it's great to be chatting to you again <laughs> all right, mate, thanks for joining us. thanks for all the support. Keep the messages coming on the website. We really appreciate the feedback and uh Bruce will continue to pump out the articles. quick one, a bit of feedback about uh the top players of the decade of the year
2: yeah i, I uh I mean, I think they were pretty fair assessments, pretty fair. Judgments on who they were. The feedback I've gotten, I've only gotten phone call feedback. I haven't gotten any, any, uh, any feedback via via you will. Um, on, you on, will. online writings. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh, they're coming. Yeah, they're coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought
2: I thought it was pretty fair. I, I, I mean, I'm pretty happy. I mean, Coach of the Year. I, you know, pro- probably going to get smacked in the head a couple times. Everything else, I think was okay. You know, I, I, and I and I think the Coach of the Year was correct anyway. So. That's that's fair enough, and we'll be talking to him next week.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, Bruce, thanks very much, and Billy Miller joining us from Wales, as we said. That is Rugged Matrix USA, episode five, the first for twenty ten. We'll see you next week.